Shrink Wrap Radio number 869, Clinical Psychiatrist Thomas Varney on Cellular Memory and Consciousness. And now it's time for Dr. Dave and Shrink Wrap Radio. You're on the couch again with Dr. Dave and Shrink Wrap Radio, all the psychology you need to know, and just enough to make it dangerous. It's all in your head. And now, here's your host, Dr. Dave. Dr. Dave here. My London associate and blogger, Isabella Clark, steps in to conduct yet another interview. I really treasure Issy, and I hope you do too. She's an Oxford grad and a professional broadcaster. She reads widely in areas I don't cover. Consequently, she brings us high-quality guests I would have not known about. Now, here's Issy with her latest find. Thomas R. Verney is a clinical psychiatrist and the author of eight books, including The Secret Life of the Unborn Child, which was published in 27 countries, and of 47 scientific papers. His most recent book is The Embodied Mind, Understanding the Mysteries of Cellular Memory, Consciousness and Our Bodies. He's previously taught at Harvard University, the University of Toronto, York University, Toronto, and St. Mary's University. He's also a podcaster, and his podcast, Pushing Boundaries with Dr. Thomas R. Verney, can be found on all the usual channels. Now, here's the interview. So, Dr. Thomas Verney, welcome to Shrink Rep Radio. Thank you. Pleasure to be here. Well, we're going to be focusing on your book, um, The Embodied Mind. But first, give us a sense of, of your background. How did you come to this point in, in, in your life and your career? Well, um, how far back do you want me to go? <laughs> um, essentially, I guess, um, you know, it, it started when I was in Vienna. Um, I, I was born in Bratislava, which at that time was Czechoslovakia. And uh, in 1949, my parents and I, um, we sort of escaped from, which at that time became communist Czechoslovakia, uh, we escaped to Vienna. And uh, I did not speak any German. And um, the apartment that we rented had some, had some bookshelves and some books on it. And um, one of the books, was by Sigmund Freud, the interpretation of dreams. Ah. And I was I was 13 years old, and somehow I, I cannot explain it how, but somehow I knew that Freud was important. Like this is something I should I should read. Nobody told me that. Like it was just in me somehow. 
And so with a dictionary in my hand, a, a Czech and German dictionary, I started reading um, The Interpretation of Dreams by Freud. And I just loved it. I just loved the way, you know, his mind was working. Uh, I love I love this kind of uh, digging deeper and deeper, you know, uh, going after going sort of deeper into the very core of someone's belief or or dream or whatever it was. I, I just I just love the process. And so then and there, I made up my mind that I would become a psychiatrist. So then we emigrated to Canada in 1952. And um, I was fortunate enough to get into medical school here at the University of Toronto. And uh, very quickly, I got the impression from the professors that we had in medicine, who at that time, like this was uh, the late 1950s, were still people who had served during the Second World War mm -hmm. uh, in the army. And they were kind of hard-nosed, uh, very realistic, I would say fairly unimaginative, non-philosophical, uh, not particularly empathic or sensitive people. And the impression or the message that I got from these professors was that psychiatrists were just a bunch of sort of idiots who who were who were you know treating very rich ladies who had no other problems than uh how to perhaps where to find a good veterinarian for their little dog so i did not want to spend my life, you know, treating rich ladies uh, who had, you know, essentially no problems. And so then I decided to become an obstetrician. Uh, but during my last year, it's a six-year course here in Canada. Mm -hmm. So during my last year be before graduating, I'd, I, 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 I decided to go and work during the summer in a psychiatric hospital in the United States. Now, at that time, psychiatric hospitals were huge. They're not that big nowadays anymore. Uh, but this was like a hospital in Upper New York State, 5,000 patients. Wow. And about 36 doctors. And Wow. <laughs> and, and I would say out of the 36, perhaps 30 were foreign doctors, mostly from the Philippines, who would sort of visit the patients in the morning, and then they would spend the afternoon studying for their exams to become um, qualified in the United States. So uh, here I was, young and keen, and so the director said, "Where would you, where would you like to work? You know, which department?" And I said, I would like to work uh, in the emergency where people first came in. Mm -hmm. And so he said, fine. So um, at that time, I had like very, very little knowledge of psychiatry. All I knew was, you know, to make diagnosis and to take a history. Mm -hmm. And that's pretty well all I knew. And we hardly had any real drugs at that time to treat psychiatric patients. 
So, I mean, there was it was just beginning to have Largactyl, which is like a major um, antipsychotic. Mm-hmm. But that was just about the only drug. And the rest were Ritalin and, you know, really old, old drugs and electroconvulsive therapy, ECT. So I started working in the emergency ward. And because I knew that you had to take a history, I would have a tiny office half of the size of this room and I would ask the patients to come in sit down and then I would start talking to them about you know what led up to their hospitalization things like that and then I would give them another appointment the next day to continue talking well within about three days the word got around that there was actually a psychiatrist here they called me a psychiatrist I was only a medical student Um, There was a psychiatrist here who actually talked to people. And so within a few days, there would be these huge lineups in front of my office of patients wanting to talk to me. And I discovered very quickly that my patients uh, got better and discharged much faster than the other patients whose whose psychiatrist essentially just took a quick history and then just filled them up with drugs and never saw them again. So then I very quickly realized that psychiatrists actually did some good with really, really sick patients. Mm-hmm. So then I went back to becoming a psychiatrist. And so when I became a psychiatrist, uh, I would see patients, of course. And one day, one day I saw a patient with whom I was discussing his dream, because I was really still keen on dreams. And while discussing this dream, my patient started crying like a little baby. And he did that for about 10 minutes. And then he came out of it. And I asked him what had happened. And he said that he had just found himself in a baby crib. And he was a baby and he was crying for his mother. And then he said, being a somewhat skeptical young lawyer, actually, then he said, you know, there's something wrong with this experienced uh, that I just had because I just found myself in a white crib and I've actually seen pictures baby pictures of myself and they were in a blue crib so I said well go home talk to your mother see if she can uh, bring some light to this and he came back next week and he said you know this is really amazing but it seems that the first three months of my life I spent in a white crib, which was borrowed from a neighbor. And only when I was three months old did my parents buy a blue crib for me. And that's the one in which all the pictures were taken. So this man had absolutely no idea that he ever spent time in a white crib. So that gave me pause to think. And um, because this is sort of my nature, Um, When something like this comes up, I don't just sort of forget about it, but it sort of started me thinking, how is this possible? How could 
how could a person at the age of one month or two months or three months remember anything that happened to him? Because I was taught at school and I went to some really good schools, including Harvard, um, that children before the age of two don't remember anything. So how is this possible? And so, you know, I started looking around and I started asking people about their early experiences and lots of stories started coming my way. And so as that happened, I began to question whether sort of the accepted wisdom of, of the age, uh, the wisdom that was being taught in schools, the children before the age of two don't remember anything, um, whether that was wrong. <laughs> and so uh, what happened next was that I met an obstetrician and I told him about these experiences. He was very skeptical, but he said, you know, there is a big meet, international meeting in Rome uh, in a couple of months. Uh, every four years, uh, it's an international meeting of psychosomatic obstetrics and medicine. Why don't you present the paper there? So I was very young. I was totally unknown, but I sent in a proposal for a paper, and it was called The Psychic Life of the Unborn Child. And lo and behold, it was accepted. It well, was accepted. You, had you yeah. written it? Had you written it at that point? I, at this point, I just wrote a, a sort of a summary of some of my thoughts on the psychic life of the unborn child. And so the paper was accepted. I was given, I think, half an hour. But not only was it accepted, and this is where, you know, good luck really plays a, a very important role in one's life. Like, you know, you can be smart, you can work hard, but you also need luck. Yes. And the good luck was that I was put on the main on, on the main speaker's platform um, on Friday morning or something like that. Um, are you familiar with R.D. Lang by any chance? Yes. Yes, I am. Okay. So Ronnie Lang was on the same morning as I was, pre okay, preceding me. So like everybody who counted was there, okay? <laughs> and so I gave my half-hour paper on the psychic life of the unborn child. And within about 20 minutes, you know, I noticed that uh, the audience was really excited. Like people were really, really listening. And so I said, I said at the end of my talk, I said, if you would like to pursue this subject further, uh, come and see me at five o'clock at the end of the lectures at uh, room 449, whatever it was. And so at five o'clock, once again, there was this big lineup of people in front of my room wanting to talk to me, including Ronnie Lang. Um, and Ronnie and I became, you know, fairly close. Um, I wouldn't say friends, but good acquaintances. And so he was there and many others, many other of the leading lights in, in psychosomatic obstetrics and so once I noticed that and observed it, I thought to myself, well, I should really write a book on this. And so that led me to write The Secret Life of the Unborn Child. It was first called, when, when I submitted it for publication, it was called The Psychic Life 
of the unborn child. But the publishers thought that that sounded too much off the wall, kind of mm -hmm. California, you know, new age. Uh, so let's call it the secret life of the unborn child. So, so when that book came out, of course, it like totally changed my life because uh, it was, it was at a time, it was published by Simon and Schuster, and it was at a time when actually publishers had money. Nowadays, they all complain of not having money. The only money they have you know, is perhaps for Prince Harry when he writes a book. But, <laughs> uh, you know, by and large, for your average author. And so anyway, they, they, they paid for a big publicity campaign. I went from coast to coast uh, on radio and television and uh, newspaper interviews. And so the book became a huge bestseller. It's, um, it's now published in 27 countries. And it's still it's still selling. It's 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 still selling. So that's how I became then very interested in sort of life before birth. Right. And life before birth and and giving the unborn child, certainly from the six months after conception, mm -hmm. uh, credibility in terms of intelligence, in terms of cognition, in terms of being able to remember things that happen. Uh, during the last trimester. And having said that, just to come to a conclusion before everybody falls asleep, uh, <laughs> uh, to come to a conclusion, so I became very interested in consciousness before birth and memory. Yeah. And so I followed that up. But one of the things that always bothered, and then I followed it up with several other books on on similar subjects. Uh, but what always bothered me um, was the fact that I also had reports from patients or just non-patients, um, people all over the world, of memories going back further, going back right to conception. And so I was wondering, how is that possible? Uh, how is it I mean, if these reports are credible and I I was able to um I was able to to ascertain them that they were credible, um, being supported by other people and documents and things like that. If if that is if that really happens, how does it happen biologically, physiologically? Okay. Because as interesting as case reports are, uh, which my critics call anecdotes. Yes. Uh, <laughs> uh, I'm as, familiar with that from the world of, um, you know, animals as well. Um, right, but, you know, right. you see, if, if you haven't, if you haven't sort of got the animal in a scientific institute. Yes, and, it's anecdotal. You know, exactly, exactly. You can discount it. Which is which is crazy, because as soon as you have it in a scientific institute, everything is artificial. Absolutely, exactly. So it, even less credible in a sense. Mm. But anyway, so I was wondering about how that could how 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 that happens, and uh, about seven years ago. Well, I guess it's about eight years now. About eight years ago, um, I came across in one of these medical journals that I read. I came across the story of a forty-four-year-old Frenchman who went to see his 
doctor because of a weakness in his left leg. And so they did all kinds of lab studies, including x-rays of his head. And to everyone's surprise, they found that this man had just a thin crust of brain tissue in his skull, and the rest of his skull was full of water, cerebrospinal fluid. And the medical condition is called hydrocephalus, yeah. water on the brain, hydrocephalus. Now, this man was 44 years old. He was a married man, two children, and gainfully employed in the French civil service. And I thought to myself, how is this possible? How can a man with 90% with of his brain missing live normally? There must be somewhere else in the body some kind of a backup system to explain this because there's no way. I mean, you know, um, your computer could not function on 10% on capacity. Um, how can a how can a person? So that's when I started, you know, once again looking into research and seeing that actually there were a lot of reports in the literature of children uh, who, for example, had half of their brain or three quarters of the yeah. brain removed because uh, they they were having um, ep epileptic attacks, which just continued and continued and continued seizures. And um, the doctors could not stop them. And the only way they could stop them was to take part or a great part of their brains out. And the same with adults. And many of these people, not all of them, but many of these people continued to live normal lives. So when I saw that, the idea came to me that there has to be, you know, just like a computer has got a backup system. So if anything goes wrong with the computer, you can go to the cloud or whatever other backup system you have, uh, that our brains must have a bodily backup system below the neck, so to speak. And so I started looking into how cells are made and how tissues in the body function and the intricate, intricate sort of network um, sort of the ways cells um, communicate with each other, communicate with the brain, all this kind of stuff. Took me about seven years to do that. And uh, a lot of work, a lot yes. of incredible, incredible amount of work. Um, I read approximately 5,000 books and journals to gain, you know, a solid understanding of of what's going on, including genetics, epigenetics, um, how how information is passed from from parental genes to the children's genes, all that kind of stuff. Well, I, and, I was thinking about that just today, Thomas, because yes. I when I was listening to I, I mentioned before we started recording, I've been listening to David George Haskell's book, Songs yes. of Trees. And he mentioned in, in that book that trees pass on can pass on epigenetically the memory of through the weather conditions. No, this is this is oh. through their seeds. So oh. they, so so they can pass on through if they've gone through a severe drought. 
they can pass on the memory of that drought to the seedling that grows from the seeds that are created that year. Ah, amazing. Well, yeah. I, I think it's amazing, but of course, I, I totally believe it. And so, you know, we talk nowadays about the transgenerational transmission of trauma, for example. Mm -hmm. Very, very important, especially in these traumatic times, you know. Uh, I mean, those poor kids in, in Ukraine and many other places in the world where there, where there are warlike conditions, I mean, those children are inheriting a lot of trauma. Mm. And this is going to be reflected in the way they develop, uh, both physically and emotionally. So uh, just to put sort of an end to this, um, to, to, to this uh, little lifelong um, quest that I've been on, uh, I came to the conclusion that, yes, uh, our, our cells are intelligent in their own way. And uh, when they work together, as a system, they are very intelligent. And um, so I think that we, we have to realize that the brain is in constant communication with the rest of the body. The, the brain does not work alone. And so it's very important to realize that, that we have to really, and, and this is so important, we can talk about this later, uh, this is so important for medicine. It's so important for pharmaceutical companies to realize that when you are looking for answers to, for example, Alzheimer's disease, degenerative brain disease, things like that, all of them are focusing on the brain instead of focusing on the whole body. Yeah. So, so what I'm suggesting is, I'm not saying that the brain is not important. What I'm suggesting is, that the brain and the body are both important and that we need to have a much more holistic understanding of, of health and disease. Yes, uh, I, I'm, I wanted to commend you on, on your book because what you've said, 5,000 books of, and papers, the depth of research and knowledge and information in there is absolutely astonishing. But even more astonishing is how readable it is and how you've managed to communicate so many very complex ideas in a way that a layperson like myself can understand them. It's that in itself, I think, is a phenomenal achievement. And for that reason, I'd, I'd heartily recommend the book. Just so much research and presented in a way that um, that, it, that you can you can as a layperson follow it and um, and feel very persuaded by it. I mean, there's 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 so much research there that one would almost be be sort of foolish not to take it seriously. And <laughs> thank you. In, thank you. And to sort of my um my very layperson um understanding sort of in a nutshell you, you seem to highlight that um contrary to commommonly accepted understanding from cells to brains and I'm just recapitulating what yes, you said, yes, from cells to brains to brains nothing is autonomous and also there is not just a communication upwards and downwards through every level, but also intelligence critically at every level and memory at every level of the of the system. And 
so we're seeing you know the human body as something something much more akin to a to a complex ecosystem and certainly and certainly and i think you you draw upon this that systems theory is a much more appropriate way to looking um at the body than a kind of um you know logical a equals b equals c to cause sort of causal a, a, approach to understanding yes and as as you have indicated the important thing is to realize that everything is connected mm-hmm. everything is connected so you know just like the brain is connected to the heart the heart is connected to the gastrointestinal system the liver is connected to the brain i mean everything is connected we are connected to each other we are connected to our external environment and everything else you know like there are no really limits and um to to you know it seems that one of the problems is that materialism and determin- determinism you know our sciences tweedly dumb and tweedly do and uh, the uh, the embodied mind my book the embodied mind challenges the prevailing concept of reductionism mm-hmm. and emphasizes the need for more holistic and spiritual approach to understanding the humanity of humans so it goes beyond materialism and uh, you know i think that there is a very good chapter on the quantum mind in yes. my book yes explain was... sort of quantum mechanics i hope and most people have agreed with me in a way that even the uninitiated can understand uh, yes you i i did take out a quote from that section um where where you wrote the mind complements matter just as the particle aspect of matter complements its wave aspect. Consciousness can interface with the material world because matter and energy are interchangeable. And that way of putting it did strike me as, um, you know, as as having a, a beautiful clarity. There's a, there's a kind of Occam's-esque, Occam's razor-esque feel to the yes, to, to yes, that making yes. sense. Yes, it seems yes. it seems the most the most uh, parsimonious way of um of looking at the hard problem <laughs> yes yeah that's right that's right that's right yes yes the hard problem right yeah so you know uh that kind of writing takes a long time like you know i i i might spend a couple of hours on a sentence just to make sure that it really you know is clear and uh, makes sense and is scientifically supported, um, which is why sometimes I'm very critical of other writers who who don't take that kind of uh, time and patience to write their stuff. And, you know, I come across sentences that are all mixed up and I say, how did this ever get through an editor? Um, we we briefly mentioned the the role of quantum quantum mechanics there, and I and I'm sure it will um, you know it, it will be sort of hanging there in the minds of the listeners and the viewers to say, well, what do you mean about that, Doctor Verney? So um, so although you do a very uh, wonderful job of offering a praise in in the book, can you praise it even more shortly here? <laughs> Um, what is your question? Um, the the role of quantum mechanics in um in understanding the embodied yeah. mind. Well, uh, you know there are many uh, many sort of um, teachings or 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 
theories of quantum mechanics which can be applied which can be applied to the mind and one of the most important and one of the first uh, experiments actually which um started the whole interest in quantum mechanics was the fact that when an experiment was observed it turned out differently mm. than when it was not observed mm. so since that time it has become like one of the basic tenets of quantum mechanics that an observer makes a difference to mm -hmm. the outcome and so i say the same thing happens uh to you to us humans when you begin to observe what is going on in your body when you begin to become aware of some of your let's say unconscious ideas which very often are really negative and destructive you know some some idea that you're not good enough you're not as good as your father or your brother or things like that which are deeply ingrained in our unconscious when you become more aware of these kinds of toxic scripts that most of us i would say 99% of the population carry around with us somewhere somehow as you become aware of it you can change it um because you become the observer of your own unobserved tendencies or or scripts or whatever you want to call it so it will make a big big difference uh and the same thing sort of is if i may just mention that in terms of epigenetics because because epigenetics teaches us that um the external environment which includes us the external environment changes how our genes act in other words yes. the gene itself does not get changed but whether it is activated or deactivated makes a difference so you may have a gene for schizophrenia for example but you will never get schizophrenia if that gene is turned off and it's turned off by th these little switches which are called methyl and ethyl groups uh and and that is done by the environment so if you live for example a healthy life both physically and psychologically that gene may not get turned on and so you'll never get schizophrenia or cancer or any of those negative genes that you may have whereas before epigenetics and I'll go back to quantum mechanics in a second um before epigenetics people were taught that genes are your destiny mm -hmm. and so again you know that's one of the chapters in my book which shows you that genes are not your destiny they are not your destiny um it's it's a blueprint yes but you are the architect and if the blueprint i don't know you know calls for a wall here and you decide that you don't want to build that wall you don't have to so going back to uh, quantum mechanics so i th the other thing about quantum mechanics is and and this you know drove scientists totally up the wall when it was first uh talked about and discovered was that you cannot tell with certainty where any one um any one um particle like a proton neuron neutron whatever any one of those subatomic particles is is located um you can only approximate where it is located uh so we have this whole idea 
of uh, uncertainty. Whereas in the past, materialism, determinism, as I was saying, it was all certain, right? Uh, yeah. So like New Newton's laws of, 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 mo of movement and mass and all those things, it was all precise, mathematically predictable. In quantum mechanics, things are only statistically probable, but not predictable. Yeah. And the so that allows again for a much more open way of looking at the mind, that things are not written in stone, that there is possibility of change, uh, possibility of unpredictability, which is good. I mean, you know, who wants to live a life which is totally predictable? <laughs> right? Uh, that would be terribly boring and terribly awful. So, you know, that's another thing. And the third thing is what's called a, a superposition. Um, when a particle that was at one time one, like one unit, becomes divided. And so you have, let's say, one proton a thousand miles away from the first one. Let's say proton A is a thousand miles away from proton B, but they are still in some way connected, which we do not understand. And is that um, you? You have a section on sympathetic communication, which yes, exactly, exactly. Yes. yes, and and so and so the idea is that um, that um, that perhaps in the, in those situations where we can't fully explain how someone seems to be experiencing something when they aren't there that right. that this might be a way of 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 moving onwards in our understanding is that correct that is correct so in other words nobody understands this but the fact is that if one if this proton a uh moves is moved in a certain way instantly instantly which goes totally against the laws of einstein and all the other scientists who you know contributed hugely to science uh, Einstein says that the fastest way that anything can be communicated is um, is is the speed of light. Speed of light is sort of the the ultimate limit. Yeah, nothing can move faster than the speed of light. Yes, didn't he dismiss spooky, spooky action at a distance? Isn't that the term? Beautiful, beautiful. That's the term. Spooky action at a distance, right? And God does not play dice. Um, it doesn't play dice, right? Uh, he he came out with some pretty good pretty good sayings. Yeah, uh, he did, he did, he did. Uh, but he was no friend of quantum mechanics because it sort of totally went against his own discoveries, which is understandable. But the point is, as you have rightly mentioned, that these two these two uh, subatomic particles are somehow connected because the moment that one makes uh, is 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 made to spin in a certain way, the other one will spin in the opposite way. So how does that happen? Nobody knows. All, all we know at the moment is that somehow they are connected. And what I what I propose uh, is that people who are in a very close relationship, who somehow you know are brothers, sisters, or are very good friends are also connected. And so when one of them goes through a very 
drastic change in their status. Let's say that um, they're in a car accident. The other one will know. Will suddenly know that something has happened to his brother or mother or father or whatever, right? Mm -hmm. How does this happen? I don't know, but it happens along the same ways. This is sort of another way in which quantum mechanics can teach us about human behavior and excuse me, human actions. So all of that I find very interesting. And I don't think that we have, you know, said the last word on this. But what I like to think is that it opens up the gates for more research and, uh, and, and more advances in understanding uh, humans. How do you think that these that this kind of understanding could particularly um, particularly help in 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 your area of uh, of medicine and psychiatry? Um, one one thing I was thinking, um, and it's not related to the quantum mechanics, but um, something that struck me very strongly in in your writing was the idea of body armor. Um, yes. and the, the, the and this is related to I think um, some of Bessel van der Kolk's work. He's been he's been a guest on Shrink Rap radio um i know oh, yeah um, yeah dr dave has interviewed him at least once um uh-huh. and and i'm a, a, a huge fan of his work um I, I i very much like the body body keeps the score and yes. so you, you you talk about that um your body his a quotation from him your body believe it or not remembers yes. everything sound smells yes. touches taste but the memory is not held in your mind locked somewhere in the recesses of your brain instead it's held in your body all the way down at the cellular level and the idea of 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 your idea of body armor taking that a bit further sounds like it's a it's a kind of um a, a way in which a way in which sort of trauma can freeze the body into into yes. certain into certain sort of movement restrictions could you explain that well um it it is not clear um how this happens um there there are certain traumas uh certain you know really really upsetting um life endangering uh situations um which have a tremendous effect on the whole body i mean i'm sure that some of your listeners for example are familiar with the fact that <clears throat> sometimes uh, during wartime, let's say in London during the Blitz, uh, some people's hair suddenly overnight went from black to gray. Right? Yeah. Uh, some some people uh, some people will have huge sort of physical changes under stress, uh, and that would be one of the more visible ones. Right? When your hair you know, overnight or within a few hours uh, turns gray, or some people will lose all their hair. Um, uh, Other people will, of course, develop high blood pressure, diabetes, all kinds of other things can happen as a result of uh, of fear or or trauma, anxiety, depression, all of those things. Um, Now, one way of in which the body defends against that kind of onslaught from the environment is by developing body armor. 
and by by that we mean a, a kind of uh, of drawing in of all your cells and tissues and um, trying to create a, an impermeable membrane around yourself so to speak sometimes this is this is um, over the whole body sometimes it is only in one part of the body um if it is in one part of the body, that's where um, that's where body work can really help. Body work, in other words, you know, certain forms of massage. Would would uh, um, would Moshi Feldenkrais work with Nora yes. in in this category? Yes, Feldenkrais definitely would fall into that. Rolfing would fall into mm -hmm. that. Uh, many other sort of more. Um, focused types of uh, body work. I don't want to use the word massage because uh, although it is a form of massage, but massage creates in people's minds a more relaxing type of, uh, of, of body work, whereas this would be more focused so that you would really be pushing in, let's say, with both thumbs or sometimes even with elbows on an area which feels constricted, okay, tight, tight, tight tight because you don't want to let anything in right so it's a it's a kind of self um protective device you this makes yourself. me this makes me think of franz kafka's metamorphosis it's because it sounds like a carapace it sounds like the sort of yes. like insects carapace going around the person yes yes have you ever been to prague I have been to Prague only once. I, it was just beautiful, just beautiful, and very good food as well. Very good food and very nice people. Oh, very, yes. very, very nice people. I was in Prague um, last, uh, when was I in Prague? Last year. And I, I had a wonderful, wonderful time. But the reason I, I mention it, of course, is because Franz Kafka is very much celebrated in, in Prague. And certainly, metamorphosis is is an incredible story, and uh, and so is the one where the where a person turns into a bug. That's the bug. Remember? That's the what. That's the metamorphosis one. Isn't is that it? metamorphosis? Yeah, okay. yeah, that's the one I was okay. thinking of. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. The, uh, I mean, there are all those short stories, mm. and I guess the book the name of the book is metamorphosis, perhaps. But there's also one short story about a person being sort of tortured and going through some kind of a machine that inscribes things on his skin. Oh, no, I don't haven't read that one. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that's very famous. That's another one. Uh, that's much more terrifying. Um, yeah, so he, he, he it's, it's some kind of a machine that inscribes sort of tattoos things into his skin uh, as a punishment. That is interesting. It it does it does seem as if he's um as if he's you know intuiting towards exactly the sort of work that you're that you're talking about here. Yes, yes, yes. Well, you know, a lot of writers have had incredible psychological insight insights like Dostoevsky, Tolstoy, you know, people like that. Uh so anyway, going back to right. uh, quantum mechanics. So there's there's much I think that we can learn from quantum mechanics and uh it's uh you know it's it's a it's the science of the future because like for example now a lot of scientists are working on on quantum computers mm. 
and trying to apply quantum mechanics to computing. And uh, another way that compute com that people are working on new ways of computing is through biological computers using DNA as uh, as a as a memory container, uh, which of course it can because DNA contains like millions and millions of pieces of information. So yes, you talk our... about how you you mention how um, some um, scientists had had. Um programmed into strands of dna yes. things like yes. the certain songs how does that happen how, how did they i was i was just i couldn't i couldn't yeah. understand how that was happening yeah i think i think one person one person was able to put into dna the complete works of shakespeare wow yeah i don't know i i really don't know how that is done i really don't know but i know that you know has been reported and uh, again, you know, it's uh, it's the science of the future. And the reason I mention it in my book is because it shows you how much information you can actually store in a cell, which is so small that you can't see it with the naked eye. Mm -hmm. And so people thought, well, how could you store any kind of information in something that you can't even see? But you can. I mean, it's amazing, but it's I true. I was listening to someone the other day, and I can't remember the name of the, his evolutionary biologist. And he yes. said that you know he he firmly believes that black bacteria, for example, have a conscious have a a form of you know a, whether you call it a proto consciousness or a yes, slight okay. amount of yeah. consciousness, but that yeah. you know, and whether whether one is a sort of panpsychist and believes that. Um, that sort of everything does or whether there's a within a complexity of system or how it works i think is probably less less important to, to well to me anyway than um than the acceptance that we're in an animate world uh, and right. an animate world from such a you know from the microscopic level and that and the the other the idea that you that you talk about with all these um, connections and communications that draws me into the feeling of um, of whether we take it from the level of a um, you know a cell or an organ or a human being or a culture or a um, ecosystem that we all of these things are entities whose essence is relationship connectivity and communication right and. Right. And whatever fractal layer you choose to focus upon, you've got the same thing going on. You've got the same level of, um, you know, there being an intelligence, there being communication to uh, to a sort of a more com greater complexity or lesser complexity, and and that that everything is in flux with the um, way in which the environment is is a given time and of course then everything else is also um is also interacting and changing the environment so there is this there is this complete polyphonic dance of um of 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 consciousnesses of beings of life and it makes the world that much more exciting than i think um you know a kind of reductive um Exactly. Does. exactly exactly you know speaking of reductionism um you know um now chat gpt you know um ai artificial intelligence is having its moment now everybody mm -hmm. is talking about that so i was reading about this uh, joshua bongard professor of computer science at the university of vermont 
And um, he believes that consciousness doesn't just consist of cognition and mental activity, but has an essentially bodily aspect. Yes. I I thought that that was really, really, really very interesting. I'm sorry about this telephone. Excuse me. Hello? It's a fax machine that is trying to get in touch. (laughs) Uh, And uh, he has, if I can tell you about that, he has developed beings called xenobots made entirely of frog cells linked together so that a programmer can control them like machines. According to Dr. Bongard, it's not just humans and animals that have evolved to adapt to their surroundings and interact with each other. Our tissues have evolved to subserve these functions and our cells have evolved to subserve our tissues. And this is a quote from him. What we are is intelligence machines made of intelligence machines, made of intelligence machines all the way down, he said. Wow. So, you know, so that's another way of looking at what I have been saying, which is saying that cells, you know, you go from the brain to tissues to cells, and cells also have their own uh, intelligence, Uh, but especially when they work together, as networks, which is what computers do when you when you can connect, when you can connect more and more computers to each other, you can you can do incredible things. And it's the same thing with our bodies. It's all as long as we are connected to our cells, uh, we can stay intelligence, intelligent. What would you like to see? Um to see growing out of your of of your work what kind of research what kind of developments what kind of um ways of of increasing flourishing at whatever level um do you hope might might come from the work that you've been doing here well <laughs> first of all scientific emphasis on the brain um is is all wrong. It it does not serve us well. Um, scientific emphasis on the brain has started, you know, in the Western culture um, with Greek civilization, which has been patriarchal, and patriarchal gives rise to hierarchical social structures. And so everything, you know, who is the head of the government? Who is at the head of this group? Uh, who? How do we get ahead in life? All of that is head, head, head. And so I'm really sorry about this. It's a determined Uh, faxer. It's a determined faxer, yes. So everything is head, head, head. And we have to realize that we have to to change that. It does, you know, like chickens have their pecking order. Uh, but this system does not serve humanity well. So we have to change the hierarchical structure, first of all. Um, and, and that means treating all people equally, of course, socially, so that, you know, it's not just, you know, white civilization, which is up here and every, every other color is down there, but it's the same thing in, in social interactions, but more 
well, I don't know whether it's more important, but equally important, let's say, is that, for example, in medicine, because of this hierarchical way of looking at the world, people who are cardiologists only look at the heart. People who are urologists will only look at the kidneys and the mm -hmm. bladder, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. What we need is for them all like to come together, to work together, just like the brain has to work with the rest of the body. People who are separated by these different um, scientific disciples, disciples um, need to work much more together. So we need to create institutions, uh, whether it's hospitals or universities, where people with different specialties uh, have an opportunity to meet with each other, let's say once a month, and have um, an exchange of opinions and theories and can discuss things so that the cardiologist can speak to a neurologist and they will discover that certain things they have in common and how can they work together on some of the problems like Alzheimer's, for example, okay? So like there's a university in um, in Australia, I think it's called Curtin, Curtin University in mm -hmm. Australia, where they have discovered that, you know, the plaques that the amyloid plaques that seem to be responsible at the moment, that's what is being said, but I'm sure there's much more to it than that. But amyloid plaques are sort of the villains at the moment of Alzheimer's disease. So all the research, medical, pharmacological, goes towards how can we prevent the laying down of amyloid plaques in the brain. But at the Australian University, and it's not the first one, but it's the one that I know about, have discovered that amyloid plaques are actually made in the liver. And it's from the liver that they are being transferred to the brain. So if we could prevent amyloid plaques, A, to be manufactured in the liver, because it's probably because there's something wrong with the liver that is producing amyloid plaques, because the liver is not made for that purpose, Boy, these people just don't give up. Um, and secondly, even if you can't prevent the formation of amyloid plaques, how do you prevent it from going to the brain? Then we so how could does it have... get through the brain-body barrier? Yeah, that's right. Uh, it does. It does. I don't know. It does. Uh, you know, you, you're quite right. There is this barrier in the brain. Um, but... Um, it gets through. It gets through somehow. It's a good. It's it's a good question, but it gets through. Um, and you know, we we can go on and on about these things. For example, antidepressants. Yes. Uh, they work in some people. They don't work in others. Yes. Yes. Um, in one third of the people, they really work. In one third of the people, they make no difference. And one third of the people have to have to stop taking it. Uh, because of side effects. Now, it has been discovered that there are bacteria in the gut of many people who actually destroy antidepressants. And so the reason that certain antidepressants don't work in certain people is because of the bacteria contained in their gut, gastrointestinal tract, GI tract, right? 
The same thing applies to many other medications. One of the one of the most frequently used medications are is simvastatin statins, mm-hmm. uh, which prevent you from de- from developing what um, um, yeah uh, from developing uh, atherosclerosis or is it something like that? Uh, yeah, it's it's uh, it's it's uh, cholesterol. It's it's anti cholesterol, right? Uh, so. In order so that you don't don't develop plaques in your uh, in your in your arteries, right? So, if we had before prescribing, let's say statins or antidepressants or many other drugs, if we had a way of sort of examining a person's gut bacteria, then we would know what kind of medications will work. And what kind mm. of medications will not work? But you have to pay attention to the gut bacteria instead of just oh you're depressed or you have high you have high blood glucose so we'll give you simvastatin. That's the could, wrong way. Isn't there isn't there some suggestion that there that particular gut bacteria can well can influence the mood anyway? So aside Absolutely. from what they're doing, aside from I mean, and you, and you do talk about this in the book. That aside yes. from what they do with the antidepressants, they are they are already interacting with them with the mood of the of the individual. They're they're incredibly important. Uh, like ser- lack of serotonin is blamed for many people developing depression, that they don't have enough serotonin in their brains. Once again, in their brains, they don't have enough serotonin. So what you do is you give them Prozac or any one of those, um, any any one of those drugs, and they increase the serotonin content of the brain because it does not get absorbed uh, so quickly. Okay, but most of the serotonin in our bodies is actually produced in the gut. It's cells in the lining of the gut that produce serotonin. So if you want to have more serotonin, that's where we should be looking at instead of you know uh, how to prevent the reabsorption by, by neurons in the brain. So like we are, we are looking at the wrong places in terms of pharmaceuticals, and, and the production of medicines because we are so focused on the brain, like all our moods, all our anxieties, all our feelings, it's all in the brain. And that is wrong. It's 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 not true. It's it's just not true. No, I think I I, I remember that the serotonin the stomach thing, which I yes. which I learned from a um a yoga practitioner who was actually doing some research with I think Newcastle University because uh-huh. of the um they were they were researching d- sort of somatic interaction somatic influences on 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 mood and so forth so uh, you know it's not completely the same as um as what's the name um Cuddy's power pose thing but it certainly does I mean I yes. I there there are there are sort of you know, however subtle, but mood differences to to posture and to and to holding yourself, um, and and breathing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean- oh, breathing! Yes, we haven't even talked about breathing. I mean, you know, this is something that yoga yoga practitioners uh, have been uh, teaching us for I don't know two thousand years, three thousand years, whatever yeah. it is. 
how important, you know, deep breathing can be and how that can affect the rest of your body, including your moods, the way mm. your mind works, all that kind of stuff, you know, learning to relax, learning to breathe, which is all bodily stuff, right? Has really yeah. nothing to do with brain. It's it's how you breathe and how that affects your body and your mind. And I have um, so I have a sorry to, sorry to interrupt. It oh, just, no, no, it no just, go ahead. Um, I have a, a, a sort of breathing exercise, which is a kind of you know a, a sort of combined with my own personal environmental prayer thing that I do outside in the morning when I'm feeding the birds. Oh, yeah, <laughs> and yeah. So the so it's, you know, it involves Mother Earth and Father Sky and, you know, connection and is basically what's called the box breathing where you, you inhale, hold, exhale, hold and go around in that cycle. And I find that after I've done a few rounds of this breathing, <laughs> the um you know the the squirrels and birds in my garden feel happier about being close to me i'm no longer got the same sort of like you know spiky rigid predatory energy now i'm not i'm not suggesting that you know i well i don't know but i don't think i'm giving up it's it's so much about energy is about them being able to read the body state of something that looks relaxed as opposed to something that looks that looks sort of mm. tense and jittery and unpredictable. And it just, the fact that, you know, animals who you can't persuade verbally, you can't con them with your concepts, they're just responding to the situation as it is. And I've noticed this for a long time when I, I used to do Tai Chi um, and I had horses. And when I did Tai Chi around the horses, the horses would always go to sleep. I'd have you know, foxes and magpies perching around me. I mean, it was like sort of like Snow White in the woods. Just, and I think there was just something about this, this sort of body that was at peace that that seemed to offer, offer something um, of sanctuary to to other other creatures. And and speaking of other creatures, I mean, some of them are incredibly intuitive. Uh, like you know, I I've heard I've heard of dogs, for example, uh, who will let's say in in a home for the elderly, you know, they will they will go over to the person who is in most pain or who is most upset, and you know, just snuggle up against them to make them feel better, mm. and uh, and also of course you know dogs are very good. At sniffing, at sniffing out cancer, when yeah. when a person has no idea, when no doctor has has found any uh, any any cancer on them, the dog will identify cancer in a person who has not yet been diagnosed with cancer, and then later they are diagnosed as having it. So, I mean, animals have incredible powers that we don't even know about at the moment. And what you know, one of the things that that surprised me as I was researching my book was that you know some animals that don't even have brains, like octopuses, for example, who don't who, who don't who don't have brains, uh, are are incredibly smart and sensitive, and and molds which which I think don't even have many neurons 
are able to learn how to run through mazes. <laughs> and it's just a one cell being, you know, it's, it's mm. just one very large cell, a mold, very, very primitive, as primitive a being as you can get. And yet, you know, they learn how to run through mazes, find the shortest distance between, you know, where they start and where there's food, things like that. So, you know, once again, uh, there's just so much that we don't know about how our bodies and uh, bodies in general, tissue cells work, except one thing is very clear that these cells are much more complicated, much more complex than we have ever thought of them as being. Yeah. And I'm so sorry I interrupted you when you were in the oh. when you were in the middle of talking about breathing, and I didn't know if you wanted to if you wanted to oh. sort of finish up that idea when yeah. before you were rudely interrupted by by me not, getting overexcited. Not at all. Not at all. <laughs> not rudely. Not rudely at all. No. <laughs> No, no, I, I think, you know, um, breathing is very, very interesting. Um, and again, it, it breathing shows how you can affect your mind, uh, how, you know, people who breathe in a certain way uh, can get rid of depression or start feeling better. I mean, there's just so much to it that I... Um, I, I've just scratched the surface, really. I mean, there's much more work to be to be done. But what is really important is, you know, is to develop your faculty of interoception, which means like being in touch with the interior of your body. So there's perception, which is outside, and interoception, which is being aware of what's going on inside. Yeah. Uh, there are so many people who never pay any attention to signals from their body, like hunger, for example. There are some people who never feel hungry. Wow. Yeah. I can't imagine that. <laughs> no, neither, 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 neither can I. Neither can I. Yeah. Especially if there's chocolate in sight. Uh, <laughs> it's my, one of my weaknesses. Fresh bread and chocolate. Those oh, are the, yeah. yeah, fresh bread, definitely. Fresh bread, you know, the smell of it. Mm, mm. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah. Uh, so I would definitely champion that. I would definitely advocate people becoming, you know, more aware of their bodies, what's going on outside, on the skin, what's going on inside. Mm -hmm. uh, so much of our attention is focused on the outside, you know, how we look, how other people look, what other people will think of our looks, all that kind of stuff. Instead of much more being focused, what's going on inside of me, you know, what messages am I getting from my hips or my knees or from my lungs, you know, all that kind of stuff. So, I, I would definitely want to leave um, your listeners with that message that, you know, um, looking inside, not only psychologically in terms of, you know, unconscious messages that I have, um, that I have inherited uh, from my parents uh, or acquired from my teachers. Like I had a teacher, I think I was about seven years old and there was a choir. I was supposed to be in a choir and we were supposed to sing. 
and she came over to me and she said, don't sing, just oh. open your mouth. Oh. Because, because you have no, what is that called? Tone when you deaf, don't, you're tone deaf. Or... You're, to, you're tone deaf, don't sing. That was the last time I did any singing. I totally lost interest in music. I, you know, it, it was, it was, it, you know, it finished me for 20 or 30 years in terms of uh, any interest in music or singing, like, you know, when other people sing the national anthem or something like that, I would just, you know, open my mouth, but I wouldn't sing because I was told that I shouldn't sing. That's so, horrible. so, you know, little, I mean, people don't realize that, that a uh, totally stupid comment, like an, a, just a thoughtless, a thoughtless comment can really have long-term effects on a person. Mm. And uh, so again, you know, it's important <laughs> to keep sometimes your mouth shut before you make a stupid comment um, because it can hurt someone for, for a long time, sometimes forever. Well, we've really only only scratched the surface of your book, which, although it isn't incredibly long, is just so incredibly oh. rich and detailed that yes. um, you know there is there is far far more in there for um, for those who are interested to to explore. Um, and I don't know if there's anything that you'd particularly anything that you'd particularly like to like to stress now because I'm 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 mindful that I've taken up quite a lot of your time today. Thank you. That is very, very kind of you. Well, uh, no, I, th I think, you know, we have covered, we have covered a lot. I think the important thing to, re to remember is that perhaps in terms of epigenetics, you know, epigenetics has, has given us the tools to really um, control our lives to, to a great extent, more than we have ever been able to, you know, to know that if I speak to someone who is very critical of me, it's going to have a, an, one effect on my genes right then and there. But if I speak to someone who is loving and positive, it will have another mostly beneficial effect on how my whole body operates. Like everything is constantly, as you said, in a state of flux. And so nothing is written in stone. Everything can be changed and you have the power to make those changes. And also you have the power to make those changes if you are pregnant. If you are a pregnant woman, you can have a great deal of influence on the baby's uh, somatic and psychological health uh, by the way you live, by the way you think, uh, the kinds of things you say to the baby while it's still in the womb or after it's born. Like all those things uh, give us new powers that we did not have before. And so use them for God's sake, use them. Thank you. That's a that's a wonderful place to end. Dr. Thomas Verney, thank you so much for your time and, and thank you for being on Shrink Rap Radio. Thank you. And uh, let's do it. Let's do this sometime again. And it was a pleasure. Thank you.
I wasn't simply flattering Dr. Verney when I praised the book. It truly is both accessible and very rich. Well worth a read. I'm open to the idea that there's intelligence at all levels and indeed might like to suggest it a networked intelligence where individual life forms function together, not just a hive or an ant, he'll say, but a forest. Dr. Verney feels his thesis is inspiring because it creates more room for free will, for human agency. He also explained how a holistic approach might offer better therapeutic interventions and better health outcomes. For me, as a lay reader, much of the pleasure came in learning about these previously unappreciated qualities and capacities of cells, of organs and so on. It's awe-inspiring. Wonderful. One of those cases where science increases one's sense of the incredible majesty of the living world. I hope you enjoyed the conversation. If so, do check out The Embodied Mind, Understanding the Mysteries of Cellular Memory, Consciousness and Our Bodies. Hi Dr. Dave, this is Sabina. I'm studying integral and transpersonal psychology and I've been listening to Shrinkwrap radio podcasts for a while. I've learned so much from the interviews and on so many topics. And I love particularly those interviews focused on Jungian and transpersonal psychology. Please keep going, Dr. Dave. You enrich our lives and our work so that we can transform others. Thank you, Sabina, for your deep appreciation. I think you'll find today's interview one that expands the transpersonal possibilities. Once again, time to shrink wrap it up. Thanks to my London associate, Isabella Clark, and her guest, Canadian clinical psychiatrist Thomas Varney, for their discussion of Varney's book, The Embodied Mind, Understanding the Mysteries of Cellular Memory, Consciousness, and Our Bodies. Next week, my guest will be licensed psychologist Dr. Deborah Sarani on Living with Depression. Until next time, this is Dr. Dave reminding you to be kind to yourselves, others, and our precious Earth. You've been shrink-wrapped by Dr. Dave. All the psychology you need to know, and just enough to make you dangerous.